I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles this morning to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. We've been in Hebrews chapter 1 for a little bit, and now we're turning to another chapter. Our focus on these Lord's Day mornings this Christmas season, as we've been studying the Scriptures together, has been the incarnation of Jesus Christ, God the Son, as God, becoming a genuine human being. The letter to the Hebrews has much to teach us about this mystery. We spent the last three Lord's Days unpacking seven phrases from the opening verses of Hebrews that begin to reveal to us in glorious and comprehensive terms Why Jesus is, as it says, the final word from God. God spoke in time past through his prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us through his son. Not as if Jesus is just another voice in a long line of voices, but he is the final word. He is the fulfillment of all that God has promised. First, because of his essence, Jesus is God. Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Then we saw the work of Jesus. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. He's the redeemer. And finally, we saw the status of Jesus. He is the owner and ruler of all. And what is most remarkable about this exalted status that Jesus, uh, is that Jesus came to the lowest possible depths when he was born a human being and suffered and died serving the Father and for love serving us to the lowest possible depths, but exalted by the Father to the greatest heights. That's what we've been rehearsing over the last few weeks. And that's why we've, we've seen uh, this rich and wonderful doctrine in this letter. And I want you to see this morning, we have to understand what we've seen already. We have to get it in our minds that Jesus is God, creator, sustainer, redeemer, owner, and highest ruler over all things. If we are going to appreciate fully what the author of Hebrews says next in his letter, because after the author of Hebrews exalts Jesus in the rest of the chapter by showing us how much better he is than the angels, and we haven't really probed that part of the chapter very much, he eventually sharpens his focus not on Jesus's deity, but on his humanity. Not only is Jesus fully God, but he is fully man. And that is the emphasis of the text that is in front of us in chapter 2, starting in verse 5. We'll begin our journey through this text that we'll go through for the next few weeks, starting in verse 5, and we'll just go through verse 9 this morning. As I said, the author has been making a comparison between Jesus and the angels. So in verse 5, let's read, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, namely Psalm 8, What is man that you are mindful of him? Now, notice what he says here. It is not to angels that God subjected the world to come. It is to a human being that he subjected the world to come. But he's saying this by calling our attention to Psalm chapter 8. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man? 
that you care for him. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet, the feet of human beings. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, that is to Jesus Christ. But we see him for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Now, we've been celebrating a lot of births this year. Ava Stumer and John Joseph Bump, otherwise known as Jojo. And our beautiful little granddaughter, Charlie Lane, who is with us today, but she's out in the hall with grandma right now, figures, because uh, she was fussing a little bit, you know, so we'll, we'll give a pass on that. But she is with us this morning. We've been celebrating with the Davises, their uh, little granddaughter, Lillian. I learned this morning that Joseph and Cindy Woodruff had a little granddaughter. Uh, over the last week, we were praying for uh, Cindy, uh, who is supposed to go down to Florida, um, but they had a little granddaughter, Penelope Lynn. And of course, our latest addition, Kenna Karis Hamilton. Now, if I'm forgetting somebody, please don't fire me uh, because that's the kind of thing that I would do. Uh, but uh, I, I, will, I will remember later, probably on the way home from church, oh no, I didn't mention so-and-so. But not to be outdone, I want to say it looks like John and Tina Bott are also going to be grandparents as well. That news just came out over the last couple of days. So John and I are going to have some new competition uh, going on, it looks like. How many grandchildren we can come up with? You can't count pets, by the way, just so you know. It has to be real human people. Uh, but, but we love children. We love babies. They're so cute and fun to hold. And everybody's saying, ah, right? Remember, I, I, I did a session on worship for three weeks called the wow factor. Well, babies are the awe factor. And you've seen that take place. But there is a reality check to this wonderful experience because babies are a lot of work. They don't start out following normal, decent human patterns like sleep patterns. It's like they're born nocturnal or whenever you want to sleep, they don't want to sleep. And so it's common to ask new parents, is she sleeping through the night? Is, is he getting a full night's sleep yet? Three weeks after one of our daughters was born, I was telling someone in our congregation with a certain amount of pride, she's already sleeping through the night. And my wife interrupted me and she said, she's not sleeping through the night, you're sleeping through the night. <laughs> but that's how babies are. They're, they're, they're messy. They're hard to care for. But when it comes to the birth of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, it's like the poets and the artists have given him a pass on this normal newborn behavior. For example, in the paintings, Jesus is always quietly sleeping or looking up happy or sitting peacefully on Mary's lap. And sometimes, depending on the era of, era of painting, sometimes in the medieval times, you will see Jesus sitting on Mary's lap doing the three-finger thing, signifying Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I'm sure he did that kind of thing all the time. And in the Christmas songs that focus on the scene, you know, with, with Mary and, and, and the baby Jesus, Jesus is never any trouble. The cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, 
but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Or what child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping? Of course he's sleeping. What would we expect? Jesus was probably sleeping through the night, the first night that he was born. And in the song, Silent Night, Jesus is a holy infant, tender and mild. And in the ancient carol, Bring a Torch, Jeanette Isabella, if anyone even knows that song or knows the lyrics to it. They talk about how sweet the Christ child is when sleeping and they warn everybody not to wake him up. But, but it doesn't matter if you wake him up. Jesus wouldn't be any trouble anyway. Now, I want to say there's artistic value in expressions of Jesus in art and songs that exalt him in our imaginations. I'm not saying it shouldn't be this way in in the way we sing about Jesus or the way that we might depict him because we need to have the right image of him in our imaginations. After all, as we've seen in Hebrews chapter 1, Jesus is God and he is greatly to be exalted. But we can easily forget that Jesus was born a human being that he was a real human baby. The word became flesh, John 1 says. God sent forth his son born of a woman, Galatians 4.4. Born in the likeness of men, in human form, Philippians 2. And in 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, literally between God and anthropoi. Human beings. Who is that mediator? Paul says it is the man, the anthropos, the human being, Christ Jesus. 1 Timothy 2.5. Jesus was a real human baby. He did what babies do. Babies are dependent for everything. They need to be fed. They need to be held. They need to be burped. They need to be cared for in every way. When the Magi came to worship Jesus, What did Jesus do? Probably he did what normal babies do because he was a baby. He didn't reach up his hand and make the sign of the cross to bless them. And he didn't do the three-finger thing probably, you know, signifying Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In fact, he could have been fussy that day. He could have been squirming in Mary's arms. Mary might have felt uh, the need to apologize because little baby Jesus wasn't cooperating that day as if he needed a nap or he was hungry because babies aren't doing those kinds of things because they're sinful. They're doing, I'm not saying they don't have a sin nature, by the way, um, but uh, that will come out really, really soon, obviously, uh, in all of us. But, but babies squirm and they cry because they need something. They're trying to communicate. And this is what little baby Jesus was probably doing. Uh, this was part of the humiliation of the Son of God. He became a genuine human baby. Now, why did he do that? Why did Jesus have to become human? I know a lot of you are already answering that question in your minds. Because we all know he came to earth to save us, right? We celebrate his coming at Christmas. But my question is actually, why did he have to come that way? Why couldn't God have worked out another way to save us? Why couldn't Jesus have remained fully God without becoming fully human? I mean, it's great that he did that. We're all in awe of how far he stooped down to save us, but was it necessary? Was it over the top? 
Or if Jesus couldn't remain fully God, why not come as an angel? That still would have been a huge step down for God to take the form of an angel and come in the likeness of angelic beings. And as long as we're posing questions about Jesus' form, why not take a different direction? Why couldn't Jesus have been born a lamb? After all, John the Baptist announced that he was the lamb of God and Revelation depicts Jesus as the lamb. Maybe he could have remained God or taken on one of those other forms. Maybe there were several ways the Son of God, the second person of the Godhead, could have come and saved us. But you see, when we come to the Scriptures, they tell us that Jesus had to become human and that there was no other way to save us. In fact, we're not ready to probe the rest of Hebrews 2 this morning, but I want you to call it, I want to call attention to a couple of other verses later on in the text, such as verse 10, where it says, it is fitting that Jesus should be a human being and suffer as such. It's a word that means it was proper and it was right. And in verse 17, it says that Jesus had to be made like his brothers or sisters. In other words, he had to become like one of us. He counts us as his brothers and sisters in the, in the letter of Hebrews. He had to become a human being. Why? Why did Jesus have to be born into the human race. This passage in Hebrews 2 leaves us with no doubt because it proclaims for us four glorious reasons Jesus had to become a human being. And it is good for us who rightly think so much about the deity of Christ to also realize the importance of the humanity of Christ. Because just as Jesus could never have saved us if he were not God, it is equally true that he could have never saved us unless he was a genuine human being like us. And that's what this text teaches us. I have to tell you, I love this text. I love what Hebrews 2 tells us about what Jesus did as a human being to save us. And I want you to love this text too. And I want you to see how the author introduces the idea of Jesus' humanity by going all the way back to the creation of human beings. And what we're going to do is look at Psalm chapter 8 for a moment here. Psalm chapter 8. You can keep your finger in Hebrews. You can just look at the screen. I'll have the text up here. But in order to see this, we have to look at Psalm 8. And I want to do it this way. I want to read the entire psalm aloud, like we do in our service often, reading the scripture together. Let's read. I'll keep it up here on the screen, obviously, and I'll try to click it at the right time. But let's read this psalm together. You ready? O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You had given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is a psalm 
that lauds and honors God for his majesty and genius seen in the creation and ongoing care of creation. And in this context, the author of the psalm, David the king, marvels at God's highest accomplishment of creation. What is the height of God's creative genius? What was the crowning achievement of the creation week? What did God create last at the pinnacle? He created human beings. Genesis 1.27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Humankind was the last and most glorious of God's creation. And Psalm 8 celebrates that created order. Now, this psalm is originally written in Hebrew poetry. Hebrew, of course, is the language that David spoke. And Hebrew poetry contains what we call parallelism. That's how, they didn't rhyme things in Hebrew. They had, it, it was like, if you hear the, somebody who actually speaks Hebrew read it, you, you hear the lilt in it. And they often parallel ideas. That's how they made their poetry. And parallelism occurs when one statement is followed by the same statement, only with different wording. That's one of the ways they make things parallel. And often the statements are made to parallel so that they emphasize the point. And you can see that if you look at verse 3, notice you have your heavens and that corresponds with the moon and the stars. You see that? Then he has the work of your fingers and that corresponds with you have set in place. You can see both uh, the hands are being involved. The same thing is taking place in verse 4, which is where I want to focus. Man corresponds to son of man. And being mindful of him corresponds with care for him. Do you see that? So let's look more closely at verse 4. Verse 4 reads, literally, what is anosh? That means a mere mortal in human. What is anosh, a mere mortal, that you are mindful of him or her? And the son of Adam, do you know that Adam has many meanings in Scripture? One is the name Adam. Another is ground or dust. Of course, Adam was taken from the ground, and it means man. Adam means all three things in the Hebrew language. And he says, and, and the son of, what is the son of Adam? A human being. What is the offspring of a human being that you care for him or her? You see, both statements say basically the same thing. Together they express awe and wonder and irony. Why, God? Why was our race the one that you created for this position of highest honor? Why us? Now, I want you to understand something really important. In this verse, David is not deprecating humankind. He's not saying, you know, we're so low. Why would you have chosen us? He's not belittling what it means to be human. It's easy to get that idea when you read the psalm that the author is marveling that God overlooked all the other wonders of the creation and all the other creatures. And he, he, he looked over the heavens and the moon and the stars and actually paid attention to us as if maybe you were involved in something really important to you and you look off and pay attention to a little speck on the floor over in the corner and that it was completely a random thought. In fact, C.S. Lewis puts it in his Mere Christianity this way. He says the eternal being who knows everything and who created the whole universe became not only a man, but before that, a baby, and before that, a fetus inside a woman's body. 
If you want to get the hang of it, says Lewis, think how you would like to become a slug or a crab. So in his mind, Lewis's mind, for the son of God to become a human being is like a human becoming a slug or a crab. We might think the psalm is saying, look at all of the glories of God's creation, and yet God, you pay attention to us mere mortals, mere human beings. And don't you feel that way sometimes? Especially in the summertime when you're laying out at night and looking up at the stars and, and everything, and we know, you know from the Hubble telescope what's out there, a little bit of it anyway, and they've looked far off, and you, you think about all the galaxies that are out there and how small our galaxy is and how small our solar system is and tied this side this galaxy, and you start feeling smaller and smaller and smaller. That's exactly how the psalm can make you feel. I mean, who are we after all? But listen, it's not what the author is saying here. He's not talking about how insignificant we are. He's talking about how significant we are in God's creative scheme. I appreciate Lewis's comparison using the slug or the crab as far as it goes, but what he misses in that comparison is that God created human beings and endowed them with special honor and glory. That's what the psalm is saying. We were created in God's own image. Slugs and crabs were not created in God's own image. We are not simply higher on the best creatures of God list than slugs or crabs. We are in a completely different category. God did not finish all of his creation and then look down on everything and randomly said, you know, I I think I need a special fellowship with some of the creatures. Maybe I'll take the elephants. No, I'll do the squirrels. No, I I think I'll go with the humans. That's not how it went down at all. God created humans on purpose to fulfill this lofty position. David says, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. As it says in Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. God put us in charge of the earth. These are the same creatures, by the way, he, in, in the psalm that uh, he, he names uh, in, in verses 7 and 8 in the psalm. It, when, when he says sheep and oxen and beasts of the field and birds of the heaven and fish of the sea, Psalm 8 is really a commentary on Genesis 1 and 2. Psalm 8 celebrates the honor and majesty and dignity it is to be human. In verse 5, it says, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. Now, what does that mean? If we're at the pinnacle, how can we be a little lower than the heavenly beings? Some of your translations say, say the angels. That's actually a translation of the word Elohim. Elohim is often used for God, but it can often be used for heavenly beings as well. The word uh, can refer to those creatures that are of this other world. So why are we considered a little lower than the heavenly beings if we are the pinnacle of creation? It's because our bodies are created from the dust of the ground. And it is therefore to this world, the world that we can see and touch and hear and taste and smell, that we are confined. It's a natural limitation placed upon us only at this point, which will soon be a distant memory in eternity. 
But the angels, the spirit beings, move in the spiritual realm. They're not confined in the same sense. And that's why the translation in Hebrews chapter 2, you've made him for a little while lower than the angels. In other words, because of where we're placed in the earth. And as such, the angels wield a power that we do not understand. But there is a day coming, Paul tells us in Philippians 3, when Jesus Christ himself will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Do you realize in the resurrection, we will have a body like Jesus Christ's resurrected body. Some of the ancient theologians took this so seriously, they think, or they, they, they would say that uh, everybody is going to be raised male, because Jesus was a male, so no more females, and uh, we're all going to be 33 years old because that's the time uh, that, that Jesus was raised from the dead. Augustine, by the way, said, I don't believe that. He made it a point to make sure everybody realized that, that he did not follow that. But, but, that, but you think about it. We, we don't often think about the resurrection, but that is our final hope to live on the new earth. We will have a body like Jesus Christ. In fact, 1 Corinthians 6.3 says that one day we will rule over angels, these heavenly beings. But for now, we are a little lower than the angels. It is not a statement of humility. It's a statement of our dignity. That's why the psalm says, you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Human beings were created by God to rule over the creation. We are a race of kings and queens. That's what we are. But we're fallen kings and queens. For Adam and Eve sinned against their creator, and now their race, our race, is tainted by sin. Rather than promoting God's righteousness and and his rule over the earth, we often hinder the righteousness of God advancing in the world. Nevertheless, Psalm 8 shows us what God created humanity to do, to rule over the world and to represent God on earth, a magnificent and dignified position in the created order. It is with supreme significance then that the author of Hebrews chooses this psalm to introduce to us the humanity of Christ. Looking back at Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 5, now that we have the music of Psalm 8, ringing in our ears. I want you to notice what the author of Hebrews says. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking, the angels of which we are speaking in the world to come. It has been testified somewhere, and I don't know why it says somewhere uh, and not in the Psalms. Uh, it, I, I can't imagine the writer of Hebrews didn't know where this came from. He's quoting scripture all the way. But he says, it's been testified somewhere in our scriptures, what is man, not angels, but man, a human being, that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him. He's quoting Psalm 8. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. So when the author of Hebrews makes the comparison between Jesus and angels in chapter 1, all of the comparisons point to the deity of the Son. He's the essence of God. He's the creator, the sustainer, uh, the um, redeemer of all things, and he's the ruler and owner of the universe. But when the author makes this comparison... The, the difference between Jesus and the angels does not point to the deity of the Son. It points to the humanity of the Son. You see what he's doing here? He's quoting Psalm 8 as his text. 
And then he's giving us an exposition of this psalm as applied to Jesus Christ. It's another example of how the word spoken in time past has now new significance when applied in the Son. The final word. Where Adam failed, where the original human race fell, Jesus succeeded. Jesus fulfills all that God created human beings to be. Jesus is the embodiment of Psalm 8 in its fullest sense. He is the ultimate human being, the ultimate example of human flesh, the pinnacle of God's creation. Psalm 8 says, you have put all things under his feet. Here in verse 8, the writer of Hebrews explains how this is applied to Jesus Christ. Jesus, as the Son of God, exalted to the Father's right hand, reigns over all things, not only in this world, but in the world to come. But he uses Psalm 8 to expound this truth because the reign of Jesus has come about not only through the deity of Jesus that we saw in chapter 1, but also through the humanity of Jesus that we see here in chapter 2. Jesus will one day rule perfectly, fulfilling the role of humanity as it intended It was intended to be. Although looking at the end of verse 8, the author explains, notice, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. You see that? The Lord says to the son in Psalm 110, sit here until I make your enemies your footstool. We looked at that text last week. There's a sense in which Jesus, our Lord, is the Lord of all right now, but the actual experience of his reign over all the earth, so visibly for everybody to see, is still in the future. But Jesus has been exalted to the Father's right hand. He sat down, remember, as a seated priest. So he is already poised to reign over the world, but that world has not yet come in time. It's part of the substance of things hoped for in Hebrews 11, chapter 1. The essence or reality of what we see in this life are only shadows in Hebrews of what is happening later on. But this journey, which led to his enthronement, was on a path that took him to earth to take on human flesh, to become a baby in a manger, to become himself, Jesus Christ, for a time a little lower than the angels because he had human flesh. Now, here is a tension in the letter because how could Jesus Christ, who is called in chapter one so much better than the angels, be made a little lower than the angels here in this chapter? The author has to explain this tension. And that's why he begins to tell us why Jesus had to become human. That's why beginning in verse 9, the author begins to explain why it is Christ became a human being. Hebrews 2 is an apology or a defense, a justification for Jesus' humanity. So we're in the right place in the scripture to ask this question. Why the word became flesh. Why did Jesus have to become a genuine human being? And the chapter provides us with four answers. And and as you know, if you've been here a while, we're not going to get to all four today. I'm just going to talk about the first one for a few minutes before we we wrap up today. But I wanted to give you all of them here to sort of show you where we're going here in this passage, because these are amazing truths. Jesus had to become human so he could die for us. And so he could identify with us. So he could deliver us. You know, he couldn't deliver us unless he was human. And so he could represent us as one of us. And here we will see 
he represents us as a high priest. It is through his humanity that Jesus becomes perfectly what Adam failed to be, a reigning king and a faithful priest. Now, with our few moments remaining, I want us to probe this first answer to the question, why did Jesus have to become a human being? So that he could die for us. We find this clearly in verse 9. So let's get this in our minds again. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. There are three key ideas in this verse to explain why Jesus had to become human with reference to his death. The first is the vicarious atonement of the son. That's the first idea. The vicarious atonement of the son. Now, what does vicarious mean? Vicarious means something that is done for someone else or something that is endured by somebody for someone else. And I want you to notice the language here. Look at that very carefully, that he might taste death for everyone. Sometimes, as I've told you before in Scripture, those little prepositions mean all the world in the meaning. The little word for is of utmost importance. It means on behalf of. It's the little preposition you use when you're saying that someone did something that you were going to do, but he did it for you instead. This little word refers to the fact that Jesus died for you in your place. You were destined for death, not just physical death, spiritual death, forever separated from God in the lake of fire. That is our destiny as fallen human beings who do not turn to faith in Christ. Imagine all that you do in life, your work, your education, your goals, the things you're accomplishing, the things you enjoy, your family, challenges, rewards, even the joys of friends at Christmas and family and all the traditions that we look forward to at this time of year, everything that makes up your life. But imagine that at the end of that journey, All that awaits you is eternal judgment in the lake of fire because of your sin, and you know it. Would that color the way you look at your whole life very differently than you see it now? Of course it would. Jesus himself said in Matthew 16, what would it profit a person if he gained the whole world and lost his own soul? You would be like someone going through all of the motions of the normal pursuits of life, but waiting for a horrible death sentence to be carried out at the end. Except for one act that took place in the middle of human history. Christ died for us. He died to take away our sin. He died that we might live. Do you know why you had to become a human being? Because you can't kill a God. By definition, Jesus had to become genuinely human. He had to take on mortal flesh. He had to become one of the human race so it would be possible for him to exit the human race. Like you and I will all do if the Lord doesn't return for us first. He made it possible for himself, God, the creator, sustainer, and redeemer, and the one who is in control, ruling over all the earth. He made it possible for for Jesus Christ, the second person of the Godhead, to die. 
Jesus, through the womb of a virgin, was born into the world. We call it the virgin birth. That's technically not true. It's really the virgin conception. That's where the miracle was. Because beyond that, everything about the birth was perfectly normal. Mary was expecting, she grew in size. It came time for her to deliver, as the scripture says, and she brought forth Jesus Christ. But there was nothing miraculous about the actual birth. It was a birth like any other birth in the human race. Jesus became human so that he could enter the world like any other human person and then exit the world like any other human person. He shared in our mortality so that he could taste the death that we should have tasted on our own, so that he could drink the cup of God's wrath that we should have swallowed, the righteous judgment on our sin. That's what Christmas is. 1 Peter 2.24 says, he himself bore our sins in his own body, his physical human body on the tree, the cross of crucifixion. That's Christmas verse. Romans 5.8 says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Galatians 1.4 says that Jesus gave himself for our sins. And 1 Thessalonians 5.10 says Jesus died for us. These are Christmas verses. The author of Hebrews makes plain that this death, this giving of himself for us, this bearing of our sin was only possible Because Jesus became a human being. Now, quickly, there are at least two more ideas here which explain the necessity of the humanity of Christ with reference to his death. And I say quickly because once you light the Advent candles, if they burn too low, it lights the wreath on fire. So my sermons have to be a lot shorter during the Christmas season. But I want to mention these uh, really quickly. The second one is the magnificent grace of God the Father. Notice that Jesus, it says, tasted death. By the grace of God, because of the grace of God. Do you remember what grace is? Grace is an expression of God's goodness whereby he showers his blessing and favor upon us even though we deserve his wrath instead. That's what grace is. Favor where wrath is deserved instead. It means that all of the joys and hopes we celebrate at Christmas are completely undeserved. They're gifts to us. God loved us. And finally, the glory and honor of the Son. Using the words of Psalm 8, Jesus, the author says, was crowned with glory and honor. But the irony is why Jesus was crowned this way. Jesus was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. He suffered and died. It was possible because he was a human being. And it's the reason he is exalted to the position of glory and honor, the lamb who was slain. And you know what? That brings us right back to where we ended last Lord's Day, if you remember. In Hebrews 1.3, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus went deep in humility and went to the highest exaltation because of that. Humanity was created to enjoy glory and honor as God's highest creation. But the ultimate glory and honor goes to the supreme human being, Jesus Christ, the ultimate human being, the son of man. Not because he lived a human being, 
as a human being, but because he died and rose again, not only because he lived as a human being, but because he died and rose again. The path that led to the crowning of glory and honor was the path of his humiliation and death. And that's what Christmas is. And we need to keep that in mind as we celebrate this week. This, this is Christ the King whom shepherds guard and angels bring. Haste, haste to bring him laud, the babe, the son of Mary. Don't let Christmas pass without serious, thankful contemplation and worship of the son for his death for all humanity. If you're here this morning, there's a time, you can't, you don't know a time in your life where you recognized your need for forgiveness from God and grabbed onto this human being, this God-man, Jesus Christ, who's the only one who can save you. It's a wonderful time of year to come to faith in Christ, to become a believer, and to give your life wholeheartedly to Jesus Christ. And if you're here this morning and that describes you, I or number of, a number of people here this morning would love to open the scriptures and explain to you what they say about how to come to faith in Jesus Christ and how to really know the Savior personally and have eternal life with him. Because through faith in him, we will dwell and reign with him forever. And that completes the Christmas story. Let's celebrate the fact that Christ died for us because he became a human being for us. And that is what Christmas is all about. Let's pray together. Father.